Listen, my son, and accept what I say. And the years of your life will be many. I will guide you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. And when you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of the evil men. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot sleep till they do evil. They are robbed of slumber till they make someone fall. They eat the bread of the wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter to the full light of day. I was reading that this week as I was preparing for this morning. And I want to say, Happy New Year. Happy 2020. And I I genuinely believe um, that as we get into this new series about the core values of of the fellowship, we look at the things that distinctly make us who we are and they're the bedrock of us as a people. It's really important to begin with casting vision as to why we are those things. And months ago as I was praying about this series and about what should be said in this series, I found the Lord really take me beyond this series into the full narrative of the year. And He gave me three words that we're going to be focusing on all year. And this will be the narrative of the preaching ministry through 2020 here at the fellowship. Those words are rest, resolution, and love. And those three words are actually the three points that we're going to have for today. I gave this morning's title, Vision for Balance in 2020. But as I have been preparing and thinking on this quite a bit, I need to say something. I think as equally important, and though I have the distinct honor of kind of kicking us off here, I think incredibly important. The vision that a church casts is equally as important. Um, that vision cannot be carried unless there's a culture created to carry that, that vision. So as equal to the vision a church casts is the culture that that church creates. And in James, it's told us that we are to receive grace if we are humble. That God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And how many of you need God's grace? Amen. And so I need God's grace. And there's about a million puns that I could probably come up with for uh, the word vision in 2020, but I, I just don't want to go there. So, um, so here's, here's the deal. I want to talk about the culture that God is calling us to create as we carry the vision that he's given us as a people here at the fellowship. And I believe that if we are humble, if we're teachable, if we are gracious with one another as he has been gracious with us, then this will not only please the Lord, but it reflects the very person as we seek. It reflects the very person of our Savior and our Lord as we seek to carry that vision and reveal him to the world around us. And how many of you know that the world around us needs him? So this morning, um, I'm going to start. How many of you are auditory learners? Okay, how many of you are more visual learners? A lot of us. Okay, how many of you are more like experiential learners? These are the folks that like, you can tell them, but they're going into that, that storm headlong, right? And they'll learn on the backside. So here's the thing. Hopefully there's some learning for all of us in this, and I just ask you to hang with me. Uh, In Matthew 22, Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees, and it was a challenge by the religious leaders of the day to ensnare him. There was a question that was asked of him 
because they were seeking to expose him as blasphemous. They were seeking to turn the people against him. That was their intent. That's why they asked. So a Pharisee steps to Jesus and he asks, he says, what is the greatest command in all of the law? And Jesus responds in Matthew 22, 37, and says, he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Jesus went on and said, verse 39, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. Now, what you probably don't know is what set up this exchange, what made this exchange happen. And I hope to help you understand the context of this exchange in a moment. But before we do, I want to give you what God has just given us in picture form. So let's imagine for ourselves that, that uh, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is just quoting the Shema, he's just quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, which is what these religious leaders would have been praying three times daily by law in the temple. He simply says back to them the thing that they pray three times a day, but he knew they didn't live it, he knew they didn't do it, but they had just gotten into the routine doing religious practice. Otherwise, they would have never been asking or come with the intent that they did to ensnare him. So he says, love the Lord your God with your all. Let's imagine that's a circle. Let's imagine that's a circle. And that circle is what we call communion with God. Okay? And then there's another circle that he said the second greatest commandment is just as much like it, and that is community. It's love with others. So love God, love others. Now, if you've been in church for a while, I'm going to finish this, this, this picture with a third circle. And it's evidenced by this verse in Matthew 28 that he gave us. Verse 18, Jesus came near to his disciples and said to them, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus in the Great Commission gives us a third circle to go along with the two great commands. And that third circle is, to, is our mission. It's why we exist as a church. It's so If we were to say it simpler, so communion, community, mission, let me say it like this. We are to love God, love others, and lead others to do those two things. And let's imagine that Trinitary circ, uh, picture has an intersection. That intersection is the kingdom. It's the balance of the two commands in the Great Commission. And in said kingdom, your kingdom cannot grow in balance unless all three of those circles grow at the same rate. If you grow loving him and you make that kind of your thing and you focus on that more than the other, it'll actually pull the kingdom towards that entity and it dwarfs the others. So you say, I'm going to study 18 hours a day with the Lord in solitude. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read and read and read and study, and I'm going to read a bunch of authors who are alive and more that are even dead that have gone before me. Okay, well, what happens is you throw the kingdom out of balance, and you kind of dwarf the uh, interaction with other people. You're spending 18 hours a day in solitude, and you also kind of get away from the need that God has given you in the world to in associate with other people because he's asked you to serve them and love them and lead them to love him and love others. So if you're never around people, if you're spending more time reading dead authors and you are interacting with live people, you're not doing the mission of God. You're not advancing the kingdom. So the kingdom gets out of balance and these two circles that were intended to grow at the same rate dwarf. So the only way for those to grow at the same rate is to grow all of them simultaneously. And so the three words that God gave me for the year, 
I'm going to trade the words that I gave you just a moment ago in that figure, and we're going to place those words in there. So communion is true rest in him and his message. True rest in him and trusting the truth of who he is. That second one is being resolute. No matter what you go through or what you go through with others, that you are resolved in the message of Jesus because you're rested there that you can handle it. And lastly, you are going to love the world around you like Jesus did. And you're going to lift others' needs above yourself. See, that last one is the exact opposite of what uh, culture's message to us is. How many of you would agree that culture's message to you sounds more like this, that you are to do whatever you need to do to aspire, even if that means hurting those who are closest to you and on the backs of other people, you ascend? Or it sounds like this, love everyone around you and lift their needs above your own. Which one sounds more like the culture of an industrialized nation today? Which one? The first one. How many of you agree with the first statement? It's more about you ascending. And how many say it's the second? That's what I thought. And so here it is. Jesus actually took those, that statement and those two commands and that great commission and condensed it into one statement in John 13 where we're going to spend most of our time today. And the reason I asked if you're auditory if you're visual, if you're experiential, that's not going to be on the screen. I need you to stay with me. Because there's a picture, there's an object lesson that Jesus takes in John 13 to make this all come together. It's found in the Last Supper of Jesus. And he gives us these words in John 13, 34, and 35. He says the greatest command. He says, I give you a new command. I'm going to condense that whole Trinitarian picture of kingdom balance into this statement. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, to get to that place where Jesus said this, a lot happened. And to get to the place where these, these Pharisees are trying to ensnare Jesus on, in Matthew 22, a lot has happened. All of this is taking place in the final week of Jesus' life on the earth. Now, I don't have time to unpack this next statement, but you're going to have to hang with me because as we get closer to Easter, I will, okay? So it's my promise to you. We celebrate annually Palm Sunday. That is the start of Passion Week as we know it. And we celebrate the fact that Jesus came in for his final week on the planet. And we gather on Sunday for worship. That's why we celebrate that day. This has been widely debated by theologians for a long time. I'm going to try to give you context to this as we get closer to Easter, but let me just say the statement. Jesus did not come into Jerusalem on a Sunday. He came in on a Monday. He came in on a Monday, and on that Monday, there were people, just like you've read, that were laying palm fronds before him, and they were yelling, Hosanna, which means, God, save us now. Save us now. And they were laying those palm fronds at his feet because they would have been required to have them for the festival booths just to keep in step with the law at that time of year. And those palm fronds were put at his feet yelling, God save us now, in context to the fact that they were under Roman rule and they knew that their Messiah would come on a Passover. So they believed that Jesus was their king. They believe that. And so subserviently, they throw the palms at his feet, and he rides in on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy of Genesis 49, Zechariah 9, that said that he would come in not on a war horse, but on a, a picture of peace, an animal of peace. 
And so he comes into the city. And this is the response of the people. He is wildly popular, and they have completely missed, listen, completely missed the point of salvation. They are saying, Hosanna, King, save us now. Because they are thinking only about what's directly in front of them. How many of you are guilty of that? They're missing the wider picture. What they see is that their king, their Messiah, would come in and establish himself, overthrowing Roman rule, kicking all the Romans out of the palaces, giving all of the people of God the ability to reign next to their king who would take a throne, and he would set up a kingdom that they would be royalty in, and the rest of the world would serve them. And that's what these people are laying down their palm fronds in hopes of. Miss the point entirely. Jesus didn't come to relieve one nation from another. Jesus came and walks into the city during, uh, comes into the city on this day with one thought in mind to relieve global sinners from death. He came to relieve global sinners, not one nation from another nation in captivity. He's relieving everyone from death. Hello? And so they miss that point. The next day, instead of, because their hope is that he'll overthrow Rome, instead of going into Roman palaces and kicking out the king and starting to establish a kingdom, Jesus does something different. On Tuesday, Jesus goes into the temple and methodically and meticulously bum rushes it. He walks in with a whip and starts whipping those who are there, flipping over money tables chastising those who were religious leaders, calling out the hypocrisy that's evident because Passover was the most lucrative time for the church in the year. This is the time when all of Israel would come together to worship and they would be paying homage, offering sacrifice so that they could hopefully be ready for the coming Messiah to celebrate Passover. And so they... This is where your religious elite gained more money than any other time during the year. They're charging money hand over fist for people who are coming just to offer sacrifice innocently and willingly. And Jesus goes, this is sickening. It's heinous. You've taken the vehicle of religion. You've taken what I gave you that set you apart from the rest of the world. And you've turned it into a lucrative business that helps you message like the culture around you. Aspire even on the backs of the innocent, if you will. Not lift others' needs above my, your own. And so he flips the money tables and says... You've turned what was intended to be a house of prayer, my father's house, a place of reflection, a place of intimacy, a place of communion with God into a den of thieves. And so Tuesday, he got all the religious leaders a little riled up. How many of you think they're on his team right now? So Wednesday happens, and that's where you see Matthew 22 take place. They know that he is incredibly popular. They watched him come into the city and they watched the people bow. There's no way they can grab him publicly because they're going to lose all the people if they do. They can't take him out publicly. They can't even go attack him publicly because he's more popular than they are. Then they can't kill him either. Rome, who is their authority, took away that right for them. So they could not kill him either. So what do they do? The only way, the only play they have 
is if they seek to ensnare him and expose him as a blasphemer in front of all the people in hopes to turn their hearts back to Judaism and the religious leaders and away from Jesus. So that's why Matthew 22's exchange happened. And when Jesus takes what they said and he flips it on end, he takes the ensnaring. He knows the intent that they're coming with. He knows what they're seeking to do. And he says, you know what? I'm going to quote back to the thing that you pray three times a day, but you still don't live. How many of you have just gone through the religious ritual before? Heart wasn't in it. Hearing, maybe even seeing, but not doing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when Jesus flips that on its head and the people witness that, he one-ups the religious leaders at that moment. The last play they have, it's their ace in the hole, is to find someone in his camp to betray him. So they go to Judas, the only known thief in his camp, and they tempt him with money. And that leads to Thursday night, the betrayal of Jesus. But just before that betrayal happens, just before he's taken, Jesus has this incredibly important moment with his disciples. It's his last moment where he gives that new command that we just read, and he condenses the whole thing and makes it understandable so it can grow in balance. And he does it by doing not just with his words an object lesson, he shows in action what he expects of his church, and it's found in John 13. Let me read to you how Jesus takes rest in his message and resoluteness in the world, like being resolved no matter what you face and loving those around you above yourself, and he makes it all come together in this one picture. So, before Passover festival, verse 1, John 13, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to the Father. So he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them in a towel tied around him came to Simon Peter who asked, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I'm doing you do not realize now, but afterwards you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, my hands and my head. One who was bathed, Jesus told him, does not need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. In John 15, Jesus said to his disciples, you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. You're not here to earn anything. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. And this is why he said, not all of you are clean. Then Jesus had washed their feet, put his outer clothing back on. He reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And then he goes on just a few verses later and says, The new command I give you is that you love one another just as I have loved you. 
Last week, Scott did a genius job of communicating that we are called as the people of God to practice the ways of Jesus. Right here, before his disciples. And I want this environment to become like it was on that very last night where the people just did. His disciples were just as hopeful that he would overthrow Rome and they'd reign with him as well. And so as he does this, they don't understand. They're completely baffled by what he's doing. And he tells them, I know you don't understand, but you will. I'm leaving this entire ministry to you, so I need you to understand the way I expect you to approach the world. I want you to understand the culture I expect you to have as my church, as my bride. And I want that to be what drives you into the world and what is reflected to the world. If we practice his ways, we find true rest in his message. So, in Matthew 11, as we read from just a few weeks ago in sermon, we were told that Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Okay? That word, take my yoke upon you, that thought is intentionally telling us that we are to in, like, turn our hand to the plow, we're about to work. Okay? This is intentionally about work. The problem that most of us have is that we have this thought that true rest equals leisure or vacating the things that we do. So we, we appropriate vacation or leisure as rest. And that's not the rest that God is talking about here. He's asking for us to find true rest in him. He is asking us to vacate something. He said, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I need you to see things the way that I do. I don't need you to see just what's in front of you. I need to see the wider picture here. So you have to think differently. You have to be teachable, much like Solomon was writing to his son. You have to be willing to learn and, and understand that though you're young, and I know you know everything already, I have something to tell you. And how many of you, the older you've gotten, you've realized you know nothing? He goes, I need you to be teachable, to be humble, to be graceful, and I need you to learn here. And what I desire is this, that you would turn your back on the example that the culture has given you to glory grab and to ascend on the backs of those who love you the most. People who, who in this world come from a broken world and have a finite mind. And how many of you would just admit, like these disciples would have to admit in this moment, that they were hurt? They were hurt people because they come from a sinful and broken and selfish world. And how many of you know that psychologists today will tell you that hurt people hurt people? Because if we don't learn a new way, then we're only going to pervade what we know. So we have to start seeing things and start practicing things from Jesus' perspective. Jesus' example here of a meager house servant is the exact opposite of glory grabbing. Though he's the only one in the room really worthy of glory. He's the only one in the room worthy of a throne. This is the king of kings. This is the, uh, the prince of peace. This is the lord of lords. This is master of the universe, despite what he man told you. For those of you who are 40 and older... This is the true king of kings. He alone was worth it and was able to teach it. But what he's asking his disciples to do is this. He's not asking them to try harder. He's asking them, he's asking them to give up. Relinquish the glory grab. Let go. Stop trying to aspire. I left a throne to come 
and be born in the most humble of fashion. I'm about to die in the most humiliating of fashion, as a murderer and a thief. And I did nothing. So as you continue to try to ascend, recognize your king and savior, he descended. And he got low. And like Paul wrote, who was the, uh, the Jew of the Jews in Corinthians, called himself the under rower. The one who wouldn't even see the light of day, but as a slave, stayed underneath, moving the ship forward. The one who was, who was mentored by the head of the Sanhedrin and awaited his seat. The one who was it in culture, who had everything and was aspiring to even more. Later in the epistles, calls himself the busboy and says he's nothing. But in fact, that he was the chief of all sinners and aspired for greatness more than anyone else around us. How many of you recognize what Jesus is doing here? He looks at his disciples and says, I know you don't understand what I'm doing as I kneel before you. And I take your sandals and I remove them. And I take your feet, which have walked through mud and dirt and filth in a third world country, through animal excrement that have traveled these same roads, and I begin to ceremonially wash them like a servant. Not one glory grabbing or, or even communicating what I'm actually worth. I'm showing you something else. I'm showing you that in my kingdom, the last shall be first. And those who seek to aspire will be last. So loving with awe and having a true rest in what he is saying means this. It's resting from pleasing others. It's resting from the weight of the law and trying to aspire or trying to inquire of God or earn God's love. He already gave it to us. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. It's, it is rest from trying to aspire in others' eyes. It's rest from the competing agenda that raises up within you all the time because you have a will and God has a will. And he said the only way you can be mine is if you put that will down every single day. It's a rest from putting on airs. It's a rest from trying to be something that you're not. It's a rest from seeking to be royalty. And I know that we probably wouldn't say that, but they were. It's a rest from wanting to be royalty and wanting to be worshipped and adored by all people. Let me ask you this. I'll couch it and say it a little simpler. How many of you would just love to be adored by everyone in your life? It's a rest from the need for that. It's a rest from people commenting and following you, even if only on Instagram. It's a rest from building a platform that actually takes away from the one you say you serve. Because it points, and they only see him as they peer around you. Hello? A rest from seeking salvation through self-righteousness or legalistic terms. Seeking to earn his affection through traditional practices rather than trying tr finding true rest in the message of what God is, what he said, and what he has done. And no longer seeking to earn something that he freely gave away. It's relinquishing glory grabbing. It's giving up more than it is gaining or aspiring. Hello? That we've already gained. No servant is better than master or teacher, so if I can do this, so can you. And in fact, I expect you to. 
If I did it, I expect it of my church. 1 John 3. You know that John was called the apostle of love. He's the youngest of all the disciples. And he's the only one that didn't die a martyr's death. He's the only one. But he was boiled alive in Rome and lived to tell about it. Yay! 1 John 3, here's what he says. This is how we know what love is because Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our life for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in rest but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with action and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. What was that word, rest? How we set our hearts at rest in his presence by the trust we have in his word and in his deed. Verse 20, if our heart condemns us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So we always have hope. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do whatever he pleases. And this is his command, to believe in, his, in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, to love one another as he commanded us, and to the one that God commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us, because we know it by the spirit that he gave us. How many of you have ever responded to someone, maybe someone close, maybe a boss, maybe a spouse, you've responded to someone in a way that you later felt bad about? You kind of glory grabbed in that moment. You don't know how much you should respect me. I'm going to show you. <laughs> Talking about? You don't speak to me that way. And we glory grab, even in a moment. Innocent. Is it innocent? What did it do to them? We glory grab in a moment. But then afterwards, we walk away and we feel that thing inside of us. This is not me. This is not this is not what mine responds like. This is not what they look like. That conviction of the Holy Spirit. You do know that that is the only distinction that we have from the world. That's a gift to believers is that spirit that convicts us. It's more than just feeling bad or knowing that you did something more than wrong. It's, it's admitting and being conscious of the fact that God is in communion with you all the time and he's showing you how to love other people. And so... He convicts you when you look like the world and trust the message of culture more than you trust his message. It shows that your heart's not at rest in his message. So he goes, that's not me. Hello? And how many of you are grateful that you've had to eat a little crow and say sorry, son, because he loved you enough to tell you? It's a gift. So, true resolution I'm going to use this to describe how we approach other people. How many of you have ever been afraid of how things might turn out? How many of you have ever been out of control of circumstances? You're not sure how it's going to end. And so that forced you to evade potential conflict or turmoil. And how many of you, if you can't admit that to yourself, know someone who has? Here it is. He's called us to love others as he would. This is the new command. In the book of Hosea, you have a story of a man who was called to represent God to the people, an unfaithful people, Israel. And he's called to marry a woman who is pure, 
at their wedding day. Otherwise, it would be unlawful for them to marry. But she would turn to prostitution and turn to loving everyone but him. And she represented the people Israel. It was an object lesson, much like the one we just read about in John 13. How many of you want to sign up for that object lesson? How many of you want to be Hosea? And go, I'll do it knowing that it's going to break my heart wide open. How many of you, because you go, I don't want to be Hosea in your mind and heart, even if you don't raise your hand, also find that natural tendency within you to evade any potential conflict or turmoil because you don't want this thing to go south? You're not in control and you don't know how the circumstances are going to end, so you try to sidestep anything that could bring potential heartache to you. Let me ask you, how do we really become resolved and resolute if we don't allow ourselves and our minds to go all the way there? I want you to imagine and picture the worst case scenario in your life. What is the worst case scenario? I mean, where does it get the ugliest, the deepest, the darkest? Where does it get to? Let me ask you this. What are you most afraid of in that picture? Here's the more important question. Less what you're afraid of, is God still God there? When you get to that moment where you had everything that you hated and were afraid of, the least you hoped for, comes true, is God still God in that moment? Are we resolved to trust his message and rest in it that no matter what we go through, he said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I am there in it, I'm sovereign over it, and even if this thing goes completely south for you, it's a part of my plan. And I'm still God in it. You see, the, the Egyptians, Heather and I were talking about this week, she actually brought it to my attention. I thought it was a brilliant point because I was trying to develop this point. I kept trying to think of a way to say it best. She said, you know, when Jesus led the disciples, or sorry, the, the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt through Moses, did you ever catch on to the fact that he walked them through the Dead Sea or the Red Sea at night? Did you ever catch that that whole thing went down in darkness? I said, I think that's a great point. I think it's a great point because if you remember the dialogue of the Israelites right there at that moment, they've come out of bondage, they've been freed, they've been through all the miracles, they've even evaded the angel of death in the Passover. And they've come out, and now as they come up to the sea and they see a clear obstacle, they can't pass. And they look back and the Egyptians are on their way to take their life or to recapture them and take them back to Egypt. Their circumstances couldn't be more bleak. This is their worst case scenario. They begin to argue against Moses, going, why did you bring us out? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? Like, we could have died there. What? Why did you do this to us? And Moses, in Exodus 14, verse 13, says this, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm, resolute, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you this day. Egyptians, you see today, well, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. When the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea. Divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all of his army. I'm going to reveal myself to him. 
through his chariots, his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord and I will gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and the horsemen. So Moses does it. They walk through in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the night, and it says at daybreak, as the Egyptians are trying to capture them, Moses is led by God to wave his arm back over and the ocean engulfs them and goes back to being what it was as a sea. You will never see these Egyptians again. But how many of you think the message, the story, if it got to us, got back to Egypt? About who's truly God? What did he call what did he call his people, the Israelites, to do in that moment when circumstances seemed out of control and super bleak? The worst case scenario, what did he say to do? He said, be still. Trust me, when I tell you to move, you'll move. We've sung this before. I need us to think on these words when you think about that picture. You made a way when there was no other way. You split the sea so I could what? Walk right through it. You drown my fears in perfect love. Because when perfect love is present, it casts out what? Fear. All fear. We sing it, but this year it's our vision to live it. His perfect love is our very last point today. True love. We seek to grow in love this year. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to tell you, as we get into our core values over the course of the next six weeks and we look at the things that anchor us, I'm asking us to grow by 20% in every one of these areas. I'm asking us to grow by 20% in every point that I'm giving you today. Why? 20% is not super spiritual. I'll tell you exactly why I picked it. The year is 2020. It's memorable. 1% doesn't seem like enough. It seems like evading and taking the path of least resistance. 10% we forget all the time. So 20% has about the weight of Jesus looking at the disciples and said, you should forgive 70 times 7. It means you always forgive. You never stop growing. But if we can grow by 20% and reflect his practices more to the world around us by 20%, do you think the world around you begins to look different and the gospel advances the kingdom gets raised? Amen. So we truly love. In the context of John 13, this Last Supper, Jesus removes his garments, removes the sandals of his disciples, ceremonially washes filth from their feet of the very people, listen to this, that he's been leading and teaching. This is the signifier. He's trying to show them, you never lift yourself above anyone else. Throughout the epistles, we read that other people's needs are better than our own. Jesus came into the world leaving a throne. Jesus spent the last night with the disciples in a humble position of a servant, a common servant, not grabbing the throne that he was due that these men expected him to, but rather taking the lowest position available in that moment in front of them to show them what he expected of them. He expected them not to demand legalism from them, but to develop a heart of love within them. What he was doing in his object lesson as he gave away this new commandment and he did it in this picture of washing the feet was he was trying to show his church that your existence is to get as low as possible, not aspire, but rather to be the foundation of hope for the people around you. 
How many of you have hope in Jesus that his message is true, you can find rest in it, no matter what you go through, he'll be there, but you have a mission to offer that same hope to the rest of the world. And the more they see you glory grab, they have to peer around you to see him. But when you take the lowest position, there's no peering. They see him immediately because this is what we see in him. 1 John 3.16 again said it like this. That, dear children, let us not love with word or speech, but with action and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. We always have hope. It's more than not... Here, I've said this a couple times, but I want to say it clearly. It's more than simply stopping yourself from glory grabbing. Okay? That's the start. It's more than that, though. It's glory giving. Hello? Are you worth having your name lift and raises? Can you fix everyone on the planet? No, it's actually peering away so that you can point people to the one who can truly save them and give them hope. It is treating others as more significant than yourself and serving and spending more time on them than you do on yourself so that you can, out of love, because he loved you, point them to the most significant person. In the universe that ever graced us with his presence. Amen? Love is living beyond ourselves and lifting the advance of the gospel and others' needs above everything else. Above our own personal desires or agendas. In Titus 2, it says it like this. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Instructing us to deny godlessness to deny godlessness and worldly lust and live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us like he cleansed their feet for himself, a people of his own possession eager to do good works. Here's what he said to his church, verse 15, Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you, because the thing they'll know about you as my people is the way that you love. So to close, where does your hope lie today? Do you have true rest in his message and trust and true rest in the resolution, so resolved that no matter what you face, no matter what circumstances you can't control, He'll be there in, even if it goes way south. And because of the way you handle those situations, others take notice and they have hope because of the hope you have in him. Where does your hope lie? Is it found in an old practice, an old ritual, much like the Pharisees? Or is it in the person and the example of Jesus growing daily, just like his disciples around that table that night were expected to? The only way we grow this next year by any measure or more, 20% or more in any of these areas is actually not by trying harder. It's, listen, it's by letting go. It's by letting go and relinquishing control of your own life to him and serving him much like those people who laid palm fronds at his feet and said, you're the true king. We count on you. Everything's in you. We know what you do. We expect you to do. And he turns and goes, now I expect this of you. It's by pressing in with trust of the scriptures by 20 cent more. It's pressing into the people around you by 20 cent more, becoming more humble, more general, more, more vulnerable with them. 
And it's, it's by trusting by 12, 20 more percent those in your life. He's asked you to serve them before you serve yourself. So the vision for 2020, here it is. It's not one of buildings. It's not one of budgets. It's not one of us getting crowns and royalty. Here's what it is. It's not, it's not a vision for aspiring to heights unknown. Here's what it is. It's to develop a culture of descending and moving downward in order to become a foundation of hope and a people of servitude to and for the world around us. This is what Jesus expects of us as the fellowship. And this building is not the fellowship. You and I are. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for loving us. And we ask that as we come to a time of response to your word and we anticipate and kind of look ahead a bit into this year, I pray that it would be peering through the example that you gave your disciples on that faithful final night where you were betrayed by one of your own. Your word says that you give grace to the humble and you resist the proud. I pray in this moment right now you would find a humble, teachable, and responsive people. I pray that right now you would find a people willing to humble themselves and enlist in any way that you ask them to, serving others' needs above their own because of the trust they have in your message and the resoluteness they place over their life because you're sovereign. Father, we love you. We thank you. And today we respond to Jesus alone. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Can I have, yeah, there we go. This morning I'm going to ask you to do one thing. You can respond in a number of ways. I'm going to list three. But as Aaron and this team lead us in a moment, how many of you, it's just been a really long time since you've knelt in submission to anyone or anything. I'm going to open the altar, and the only person we kneel to is Jesus. That's it. He's our Lord. Much like laying down the palm fronds at his feet. Today, if you need to come and just kind of pray and put your palm frond down at the Lord and say, you're king, you're it, I encourage you to do it. If you want to come today to the Lord's table and you say, I enlist, I want to be subservient, I want to be one who carries your name because I lift others' needs above my own. No matter what you do, I'm resolute. I know that you're sovereign. You'll be there in the end, even if it all happens to go south. And here's why. Because the people that I pray for and I pin their name to the cross, they're counting on me to have that kind of faith. They're counting on me to have that kind of hope. And they're counting on me to express that kind of love. Church, I ask you to stand. And however God call you to respond, I ask you to do it.